Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Thank you, Frida. You guys can take a seat. Hey, if you're, uh, whether you're joining us on the live stream or you're uh, in person this morning right here on our campus, I want to say good morning to all of you and welcome to Sunridge. Uh, if you're a guest with us or kind of a newer guest, you don't know me, you haven't seen me before, my name is Britt. I serve the church here as the lead pastor and uh, we're so glad that you've come uh, to be a part of what we're doing here at Sunridge today. I don't have anything to add to what Frida said about our new, our, the launch of our groups. That was fantastic, Frida. I'm going to steal a lot of that from you in the future, but uh, there is a QR code, if you haven't noticed, on your, uh, on your note sheet, even on the back, where it can t- take you directly to the link, um, you know, connected to our groups. I do want to say that our goal at Sunridge is not, not just to fill this big room, it's to get you to move to a living room and to be a part of what God is doing at Sunridge. The reason why we changed the name from life groups to growth groups, I did that. So if I bugged you about it, I'm sorry, but uh, I wanted to change the name because our small groups are such an important part of the way that God forms us uh, here at Sunridge. You know, um, there's something about getting in a group of people that you grow comfortable with after a period of time and talking about God's word and what God is doing in your life and the things that you're facing that has a powerful Uh, impact on who God is making you and moving you toward becoming more and more like Jesus, which is uh, all of our ultimate goal, right? Those of us who name his name. So I encourage you, like, take a big step. We used to say with life groups, they're a life group, not a life sentence. Uh, We don't get to say that anymore, but we want you to know that you you can try before you buy, kick the tires of any group, and they won't be bummed if you say, your group is really lousy, I just want to go to another one. That's totally fine with us. Um, you know, if you've ever tried to read through your Bible in a year or whatever, uh, you know, period of time you've given yourself, you know that you get a really good start in Genesis. I mean, there's a little weird stuff in the beginning, but you get to see creation, the story of Adam and Eve. Then there's the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and uh, Joseph. Then you come to the second book, Exodus, and it's pretty good too. You're still kind of clicking along. You got Moses, as we've been talking about, and Pharaoh, and the miraculous, miraculous escape of the Israelites from, um, from Egypt. Then the Ten Commandments, which we just finished. And then you hit Exodus 21. And if you hadn't thought about quitting before that, this is a time when you're going to fade. I mean, first of all, you come to this lengthy section in chapter 21 that just seems like a random list of laws after you've just gone through 10 basic laws. Uh, and it's, it just seems weird when you're reading like in Exodus 22, if a thief is caught breaking in at night and has struck a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. But if it happens after sunrise, the defender is guilty of bloodshed. Uh, uh, it says, if you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. 
Don't deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. For six years, you're to sow your fields and harvest the crops. But during the seventh year, let the land lie unplowed and unused. And uh, one of my favorites, do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. So if you're trying to read through your Bible and you've never, never done it before, you're like, wait, what? You know, what is going on? And you tend to lose steam right here. Uh, then... Then you come to like a really lengthy, lengthy passage of scripture that talks about how to build a tabernacle. And you're like, whoa, maybe I should read John 3.16 today. And, and especially at this section, you kind of go, why is there so much detail here? We've talk, we talk about this a lot here, how God, it just seems like God skips over really big things. Big things happen and it's just like a few verses or a chapter. And then, like, for some reason, the writer just like sinks deep into these details. Um, well, I'm going to do my best to tell you why today. Uh, we're going to look at the tabernacle. And, um, but before we do, first of all, what we're going to do is we're going to briefly look at these, this, these random laws that appear in Exodus. They're also known as the Book of the Covenant. This is in, that, that will be in your notes. So that's all written out. Then we're going to take a tour of the tabernacle. And then we're going to, as we always do here, we're going to try to wrap it all up by talking about how what we read today, what we learned today, makes a difference to you and me today in Temecula Valley in 2023. Does that sound like a plan? Yep. Okay. So first of all, remember, we're looking at the life of Moses. I know we took a little break where we dug into the Ten Commandments, but here's where we are in the story. Remember, the Israelites escaped from Egypt where they were enslaved for 400 years. They camped at the base of Mount Sinai for almost a year. And there, as God's representative and leader of God's people, Moses has been meeting with God on the mountain. And he received the Ten Commandments. And he came down and he gave them to the Israelites. And you know, actually, Moses goes up and down the mountain seven times here, if you count it. And now, after having received the Ten Commandments and brought them to the people, Moses is going to go back up to the mountaintop to receive more laws and more instruction. And the author gives this great description of the scene. There's fire and there's smoke. And here's the thing, he, he depicts Moses going up the mountain to meet with God. But then God is descending from heaven to meet with Moses. And we're going to see why that's important in a little while. In this scene, the people are afraid. They don't, they don't want to be a part of this. They want Moses to handle it for them. So you have kind of a representative relationship with God that's different for you and me today. We, through the Holy Spirit and through God's grace, we have direct access to God, you and me. If you're a pastor, you're no more important to God than a, a brand new Christian or a high schooler or a second grader. We all have access, but only Moses approaches God in his presence in this way. And each time, Moses and God are having a conversation, just like two people would. And it's in that conversation from Exodus 20, pretty much all the way through the ch chapter 23, on the top of Mount Sinai, that, that God says to Moses, I want you to build an altar to worship me. And then in 21.1, he says, these are the laws you're to set before them. So these are additional laws, uh, 42 of them, and they become known as the Book of the Covenant. 
Again, 42 laws that instruct the Israelites in matters that, that kind of expand more on the Ten Commandments. It deals with legal matters and personal property and injury and social structure. And we're just going to note a few observations about these, okay? Number one, this is in your notes. The, the, the Book of the Covenant prescribes how to worship God and to live with one another. How to worship God and how to live with one another. One another. It's the first draft of how to love God and your neighbor, as Jesus talked about. And like the Ten Commandments, like we've said about them, they have both, both a vertical nature to them and a horizontal relationship. They deal with our relationship with God and how to worship him, and they also deal with how we're to relate to one another as human beings. Number two, they don't cover every possible situation. They're very specific in nature. And even though they're so specific, it's really remarkable how the breadth of governance that they cover. Uh, they include uh, situations that, that you would need if you're beginning an entirely new societal model. Remember, the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. They had no choice. They had no options in the way they lived. And now they're free from that. And God is saying, as my people who are free to live as my people. These are the, this is the way I want you to live. And, they're, and he's giving this, them these while they're wandering in the desert. They're going to eventually settle. Number three, not all of them apply today. Not all the things in the book of the covenant apply today. Remember we said that the Ten Commandments are reinforced in the New Testament and they're reinforced by the teachings in life of Jesus Christ. But that's not true of the book of the covenant. Um, some of them sound really strange to you, like um, it talks about how you can sell your daughter um, in, you know, in marriage. It, it, uh, the bankers would really appreciate that this doesn't apply today. You, you're prohibited from charging interest to your neighbor. And some of, the, some of the laws that God gives them here don't even apply to their immediate situation, like having a vineyard. There's, there's rules and instruction on how to have a vineyard. And, you know, if you're a people wandering in the desert, um, you're not thinking about starting a vineyard. But what this indicates is that God, God is planning for their future. And that, uh, as we'll see as we go through, that even though they wander for 39 more years after they come to the promised land, um, these laws were really intended to get them started right away. So this 39 years of wandering that the Israelites go through in the desert was not part of God's original plan. He planned for them to go from Mount Sinai to the land that he had for them, and we'll see why. And then lastly, like the Ten Commandments, they're for a redeemed people. The Book of the Covenant is for a redeemed people. They're specific instructions to a specific people, the Israelites. They're God's people for a specific time. And at the conclusion of when God gives Moses the Book of the Covenant, he comes down and he gives the Israelites these 42 laws, and in Exodus 24, 3, when Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. So they agreed to it. We'll see if they keep that, right? So that's the book of the covenant. You guys still with me? Wave at me. Slap your neighbor. 
You guys are really with me. Okay. So now we come to a really big section of scripture that is really detailed and dedicated uh, to the tabernacle. So once again, Moses returns to the top of the mountain to converse with God. Only this time, he gets these verbal instructions on how to build the tabernacle. In chapters 25 through 30, it was primarily what we're going to look at today. He's being giving these, given verbal instructions on how to build it. And in 35 through 40, big chunk of Exodus, right? Uh, they, it describes the actual building of the tabernacle. And God tells Moses, um, Frida read this verse in Exodus 25, 8, then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So just look at that, that one verse. God, God says to Moses, I want you to tell the people to build a sanctuary, a mikdash, a holy place for me. And in that holy place, I will dwell. I will dwell among them, among the Israelites. That's going to be really important when we tie this all together. Remember that. And he says, make it exactly like the pattern I'm showing you. Now, we don't know, but God could have, like, broken the veil of heaven, and he could be showing Moses an actual replica of, of the tabernacle in heaven, or he's giving him a mental picture. He's saying, I'm, he's not just saying, I'm telling you about it. He says, I'm going to tell you about it while I show it to you. And some of you may be going like, well, what's the tabernacle? This is, this is in your notes, but um, in this section, God gives a detailed set of instructions for how it will be structurally designed and specific procedures of how to worship God in the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is basically a portable temple uh, where God's presence is, where he dwells among the people. And eventually, 500 years later, Solomon, King Solomon, David's son will build a permanent version called the temple in Jerusalem. So, you guys ever been on a tour, like of some famous place in America or somewhere else? I, I went to Washington, D.C. two times, and I took a tour because it's really important when you go to a place like that, especially D.C., because everything means something, right? There's so much symbolism in Washington, D.C. that you wouldn't know if you just drove around and were uneducated. And your tour guide can make all the difference, right? So I took two tours. One, I went with uh, my youngest daughter when she was in eighth grade. And uh, it was an amazing tour, you know, with her school, you know, on the bus, comfortable. That was a side uh, benefit, but like they had little video screens and the, and the headrests, and they were telling us about what we were about to go see, and then the tour guide would tell us stuff, and then we'd get there, and they'd walk through, and they would point out what everything meant. You know, that star meant something. This memorial was designed this way because of this. That building is this, and it, you know, it was like I was just blown away. I loved that trip. And then a few years later, uh, Cindy had never been, so we, I took her with some friends, and we went to Washington, D.C., and we got on one of those regular tours, and like, we had kind of an okay tour guide at first, and then, you know, you can get off at the different places, and then hop on with another tour guide as the buses come through, and I think we got the world's worst tour guide. I don't think he had read anything about Washington, D.C. He was, he was saying stuff 
that's a really big Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> you know, and uh, that big gray building, that's a big gray building. He, literally, I, was, I wanted to strangle him. And, uh, but because I'm a pastor, I prayed for him. So uh, today, you know, I want to be a really good tour guide for you. And you can decide later whether I achieve that. You can say, you know, I heard two sermons about the tabernacle. One of them was really good, and then there was Brits. So that's okay. You, know, you can find really good diagrams on, uh, whose grandma says the Google? Someone I know says the Google, um, of, of how the tabernacle looked. And we're, I'm going to use one slide today. It's really simple. Uh, uh, go ahead and put it up. So there it is. And I'm going to talk you through this, okay? So what I want you to do when I talk through the tabernacles, I want you to look at the diagram in conjunction with the table that I've provided on your note sheet, which kind of breaks down the different sections and the details in that section. And then there's going to be the part that I'm saying. So if you put, if you have all these three pieces working together when we go through it, um, I think it's, I think it's going to really maximize our, our picture and our understanding of the tabernacle. And you won't get lost. If you get lost, you can start just drawing pictures on your note sheet or something. Okay. Um, so overall, you can see that the tabernacle consists of a really large rectangular shaped courtyard. And that's designated by the white line that goes around and then those little darker squares, those are the posts that are holding up this, um, linen, these linen curtains that establish this area. And you can see at the entry on the east side here that, um, that there's an outer courtyard. You see that? You guys see the outer courtyard? And in that outer courtyard, there are two objects. There's the bronze altar, which on this screen it says altar of burnt offerings. And that is a place where the priests offer sacrifices every day. By the way, in that table are the, no, the scripture references that talk about what happens there. It gives you more detail. And then second, the second item in there is the, on the screen here, it says laver, but it's a bronze wash bowl. So as the priests did these animal sacrifices, they would wash their hands in this bronze bowl. Now within the big courtyard, you can see that there is act, the actual tabernacle. And that's, that's kind of designated by the, the gold kind of rectangle. And... Um, Within that actual tabernacle, the building, so to speak, there are two sections. There's the holy place and the holy of holies, and we're going to talk about both. So the holy place, um, you can see, is about two-thirds of the space in the tabernacle, and the priest would go in and out of there uh, every day doing their daily duties. Uh, and within that space, there are three items or furnishings. Uh, that are part of their worship. And I'm going to start from the back, not from where they enter, but from the back. You can see at the back there's the altar of incense. And that incense was there to represent the prayers of the people. And the, the, the fragrance of that incense going up is symbolically representing the prayers of God's people are a, fra are a fragrant smell in, to God. Uh, and then there's a table. Um, oh, before that, there's, um, no, there's a table. So go back 
to the uh, very front, the table up there. It says shoe bread. It's just like a table with 12 loaves of bread on it. One loaf for each of the tribes and the nation of Israel. And the priests would change these loaves uh, once a week. And then off to the left, you see that there is the menorah or the golden lampstand. And these are seven lights. I'm going to show you a representation of it in a minute. But seven lights that uh, would continually burn. And the priests would tend to these every morning and every evening to assure that there's oil in there to burn. And they would make sure that, th that this light would never go out. Now, here's a side note here. In Rome, at the Colosseum, I've never been, but I have the Google. And uh, you can see there uh, the Arch of Titus. I'm going to put a picture up of that. Anybody seen that actually in Rome? Okay, awesome. You guys are all taking great vacations, I see. Um, so that is a structure that honors the Roman commander, Titus, who was the commander of the army that destroyed the temple in 70 AD. And the reason why I point this out to you is it's a historic record where we have a depiction of some of the things that were in the temple, which would be just like what was in the tabernacle. And on one of the inner walls of this arch is a stone relief, and we're going to put that up there. So just look at that for a second and absorb it. Because it's, what it's doing is it sh it's showing the Romans carrying away the spoils after they destroyed the temple. There's the table of bread, but more conspicuously is the menorah. Do you see it? With the, set, the big lampstand. Okay, so back to the, to the holy place. We can put that slide up. You have on one side this menorah that is uh, perpetually shining God's light on the other side of the room, which are the loaves of bread, which depict God's people. And then there's the smoke of the incense, the people's prayers constantly rising up as a fragrance, a sweet fragrance to God. Then you can see a little further back that in the last third, there's another room. And it's separated by a, the scriptures tell us that it's separated by a curtain that's six inches thick. And that room is called the Holy of Holies. And in that room, the Holy of Holies represents God's closest presence. It's a space where like when, you, when you're in that space, as an Israelite, as a priest, only the high priest could enter. And it was so protected by God's spirit that... If a priest entered into this space in an unworthy way, as a hypocrite, they would die. And so do you know that they would tie a rope onto that priest as he went in? Because they were worried if he died, no one could go in and get him. They could just drag him out with a rope. Some of you ever feel like they should have a rope on you when you come to church? <laughs> so... Um, the reason why it's called the Holy of Holies is because um, there's this object in there. You can see it's called the Ark of the Covenant. And um, we know exactly what it looks like because we've all seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? <laughs> so, no, the Ark is actually a wooden box. And uh, so you might, might have heard Ark before, right? Noah's Ark. 
It just, it means box in Hebrew. So you have this box that is overlaid with gold. And uh, three items were kept in this box. There's the golden bowl of manna. They kept manna in this golden bowl. You remember, this is how God sustained them, fed them. There's Aaron's rod and staff. And there is a second set. Uh, there's, a, there's a set of stone tablets that have the, the Ten Commandments. Um, but it's a second set because you're going to see the first set gets broken. Um, it's called the Ark of the Covenant because each item in there carries a symbolism of the covenant God made with the Israelites. There's Aaron's rod, which is how God led them. There's the manna of how God provided for them. And there's the Ten Commandments, which is the way of living that he's given to them. And then on the top of that, uh, the ark, is an altar and two cherubim. And this, the top of the ark is called the mercy seat. It's called the mercy seat because the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies one day a year to make Yom Kippur, which is the day of atonement by taking blood from a sacrificial animal and sprinkling it on the top, on the mercy seat. It was to atone for the sins of the people. You can read about the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, but once a year that priest would come in and offer the sacrifice for his own sin and on behalf of his family. And this priest would, would choose two goats. One goat was sacrificed on the altar and its blood, as I said, sprinkled on the mercy seat. And the second, he was to place his hands on its head and to confess over that goat the sins of the people. And then he would send that goat away into the wilderness to bear the sins of the people outside the camp, to take them outside of the camp. And that goat that the priest placed his hands on and released into the wilderness was called the Azazel. It means goat of departure, scapegoat. This is where that, the word scapegoat comes. Are you seeing some themes? I'll explain them. Last you have, and um, you guys still with me? Okay, so last you have the priests that are part of this, and this is in your notes. Um, they operated the tabernacle. That was their job. It was their full-time job and they, because they were God's representatives of the people. And so all their garments and the way they were consecrated and the procedures that, and uh, responsibilities that they had, that's all in Exodus 28 and 29. So now you have the big picture of the tabernacle how it operated, and what a lot of its symbolism means. So now, by now, I'm sure you're wondering, like, so what does this mean to me, Britt? You know, we don't have a tabernacle. Uh, you know, here I am. I'm not an Israelite living in the Bronze Age. I'm in 2023. So I want you to put your theology cap on for just a few minutes, because what we're going to talk about from here on out is super important to Christian faith. And you're going to see how everything in the Bible connects to the story of, of people and their relationship with God. This is all, it all ties together. And I have two thoughts. Number one, the tabernacle reinforces substitutionary atonement. I know that's a mouthful. I'll give you a couple seconds. Substitutionary Atonement. 
See, the structures, the rituals, the symbolism associated with the tabernacle, things like the Day of Atonement, the altar, forgiveness of sin, the mercy seat, the scapegoat, they all reinforce the fundamental concept that human beings in our nature are broken and sinful. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden, they had daily fellowship with God in Genesis. Yet, like Adam and Eve, we choose to reject God. We hide from his presence. We destroy instead of cultivating. We ruin and vandalize instead of blessing. We diminish the world instead of multiplying it. We tarnish instead of reflecting his image. And, and we choose our own way over God's. And yet God has made a way for his justice to be satisfied and his mercy to triumph. Atonement means to make amends or to repair. So the Bible depicts human beings as having a ruptured relationship with God. And it can, that rupture can only be repaired through a substitute who takes on the sin of human beings. Now, this is a key point. It's an innocent that bears the sins for the guilty. An atonement substitute. In so doing, the burden of sin is justly borne, but the separation between God and man is repaired. Just like the scapegoat upon uh, which the sins of the people are symbolically placed on that goat and carried away from the camp, Jesus Christ bore our sin and he carried it away. After the sins are laid on the scapegoat, it's considered unclean and it's driven into the wilderness. In essence, the goat, the, the goat is cast out. The same thing happened to Jesus. He was crucified outside the city. He was despised and rejected by men. He poured out his life and was numbered with the transgressors, Isaiah says. He was our scapegoat. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, the atonement of the tabernacle was imperfect and it was temporary. Hebrews 10.1, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. But because Jesus is this innocent son of God, there's no longer the need to do this annually or over and over because he is the complete atonement for sin. He is the perfect and ultimate substitute and nothing further is required. Gen Hebrews 10, 14, for by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So Christ's sacrifice on the cross is all sufficient. So here's where, like, I want to tie what I just said to, like, the theology of Christian faith. Any theology or any religious system that embraces anything less than complete and utter forgiveness through Christ is a false religion. And it is antithetical to Jesus Christ and the gospel. A religion that uh, requires self-harm or 
getting that dying confession in just before you pass or fundamentalism creating all kinds of religious markers that make you acceptable to God or thinking that you have to perform X amount of good works and get it to balance out in order for God to accept you or by giving money or just creating a self-righteousness that we could have by having a moral superiority and following every moral rule in the Bible. None of that is sufficient. Christ's sacrifice covers all of it. Yet at the same time, it's also true that we are sinners. And any religion or belief system that tells you otherwise is also false. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And if you have placed your full faith in Christ, then God says in Hebrews 10.17, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. So why... Why am I spending so much time on this idea of substitutionary atonement? Why is it so important? Because, and we've kind of said this in different ways along the way, even through Moses, God is both just and merciful. If the relationship between God and man is broken because of sin, then in order for that relationship to be repaired, justice must be satisfied. Now in religion, human beings try to satisfy that justice. Right? We do good works. We, we crawl on our knees for long distances. We punish ourselves. We try to perform at a level that God will accept. All, all attempts to be worthy of God and to be received by him, or of God or a God. But here's the difference. In Christian faith, God says, I have justice. I must have justice, yes. But I will do it through my mercy. I'll satisfy, I'll satisfy my justice through my son. He will take the burden of sin and he will carry it away from the camp. See, with human religion, there are two streams, two separate streams. There's justice and mercy and they never mix. But in Christianity, justice and mercy are source tributaries that mix in the river of God's grace. Both are present, but indistinguishable in the flow of his grace through his son, Jesus Christ. So last, last thought. This, that first thought is we're, we're seeing substitutionary atonement uh, appear very early in the scriptures. And then last, the tabernacle reveals God's intent to dwell among sinners, not avoid them. To dwell among sinners, not avoid them. Here's a misconception that you may have embraced or you might be thinking is true right now in Christian thought that God avoids the presence of sinful human beings. The design and symbolism of the tabernacle reveals that it's God's desire to draw near to human beings, not avoid them. The tabernacle reveals that God's intent is to dwell among his people. Exodus 25, 8, we've looked at it. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God, but God descends from heaven to meet with Moses. And it's there that he gives them this design for a space for people to draw near to himself. It's, it's an Eden-like space where God is present and the people, the priests, care and cultivate 
that space, just like the first humans, Adam and Eve. So the tabernacle is a space where heaven and earth meet. And I'm super indebted to one of my favorite Bible scholars for that thought, Tim Mackey, uh, from the Bible Project. And if, you're, if, that, if, that kind of, if that idea that the tabernacle is where heaven and earth meet in a garden-like, in an Eden-like symbolism, uh, you should really listen to the podcast series called the Exodus Scroll uh, on the Bible Project. They go, they, they'll do it much better than I do. Through the function of the tabernacle, human beings have access to God with conditions that redeem sinners in order to give them access to that holy God. So if you were a priest at this time, you would see yourself cultivating the tabernacle. And I use that word on purpose. You're performing sacrifices for sin. You're replacing the bread. You're seeing the light of the menorah constantly burns just like Adam and Eve tended the garden. And as you arrange the bread on the table, you would be reminded there are 12 loaves here, one for each of the tribes of your people. And all of them are represented and included because God loves to provide for his people. And as you replace the oil of the menorah, you would see God, you would see the light, God's light that perpetually shines on the bread, his people, because God desires that people know him. And that his light shines upon people. And as you replace the incense daily, you would think about the people's prayers rising up to God, who is pleased with their fragrance because God loves people. And he desires to be in relationship with them. So the tabernacle, you can see, is rich with symbolism. Some of it for us today, right? A reach. But not for an Israelite living at this time, the time of Exodus. But maybe for those of us living in Temecula Valley in 2023, uh, unless we have a lot of commentary books to read and great teachers to access and a really good tour guide, uh, we wouldn't get it. But think about all the symbolism that we see in this part of Exodus. If you and I, knowing this, if we, if we went back in time and we walked through the tabernacle, each space, the outer court, the holy place, the holy of holies, and, and each is guarded by these angelic beings called cherubim, we'd be reminded that we're moving closer and closer into proximity to the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat where we experience the full presence of God. And it's the place where God's justice and mercy collide. I'm going to ask the band to come up. And I want once again to say that the tabernacle is a picture of what was to come in Jesus. That one, we're not holy enough on our own to be worthy of God's presence. But in spite of our insufficiency, God has made a way for us to be in relationship with him. And in your New Testament, and often the word we use today, is it's the gospel. That is the good news. That there's no person so far from God. And you might think that that's you. 
But there's no person so far from God that God's mercy cannot reach you. And yet, the tabernacle also reminds us that there's no person that's like so good, so holy, so perfect, that they don't need the mercy of God. And it's under that understanding that there's nothing that can separate me. There's, there's nothing that God's love cannot overcome and that I do need God's love to overcome who I am. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. And if you've never acknowledged that, maybe you've only thought about it, maybe you've like kind of like maybe some things are coalescing for you this morning that you are separated from God because of your own brokenness, like, like we all are, and that you, you need a Savior. Paul wrote that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It isn't about us earning it. And he also said that if, if, I, if I believe in my heart and confess with my mouth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, I will be saved. I'm going to pray and I would just ask, if you're, if you're like, man, Brent, I don't know what it means to be a Christian, but like, I'm, I'm kind of, there's a picture. It's becoming more clear to me. When we pray here, I just want to give you a moment to confess to God that you need him. Let's pray. If you've never just acknowledged your need of Christ, there's no magic words that you can say, but you could pray a prayer like this. God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm far from you. And I, and I just ask that you would save me. It's as simple as that. If you did that, tell somebody. Tell a friend. Tell me. Just let them know that you became a Christian. Or you took the first step and you'd like to know more. We'd love to help you to continue to grow in your faith. God, your book is amazing. The truth is just mind-boggling of how all the pieces fit together and point at your son, Jesus. We're so grateful for your grace. And we recognize in the, in the presence of your need for justice that you have made a way for us to be unfettered and being more fully the creation that you've designed us to be, to represent you, to be, to fully reflect your image in our lives and in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being so attentive today. I know it took a deep dive. Let's, let's stand and worship together, you guys. Hey, everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.